Good afternoon. Good to see your family. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. I thank Perry, and I particularly want to thank our sister, Jackie Frawley, who has been instrumental in this and has been working here at the Washington Ethical Society for a while. But also, this is, this is kind of a, a, a second home for us. Uh, we performed here, and we held the first labor choral convergence right here at the Washington Ethical Society. Ooh, that was a while ago. See, <laughs> it's like only yesterday, and we hope to do it again. But we are we're glad to be here, and I am so honored to be able to be here to, to speak with you all this, this afternoon. I will say to you, as I say to each and every one of my classes, I bring you greetings on behalf of the unionized workers at the National Labor College. We are wall-to-wall union. I bring you greetings from all the workers who here who represent unions. I bring you greetings from the ones who went before us and made it possible for us to be in this room together. And I say to you, as I say to each and every one of the classes, welcome union members. We are in your presence, hand in hand together. We make the union strong. And this is what I say to each and every one of my classes. I don't care if the Glee Club teacher told you not to sing. I don't care if the nuns told you to stand in the back of the room and just move your lips. I don't care if the rabbi went out and said, Oy vey genug. I don't care if your children went screaming from the nursery. No, mommy. No, daddy. Don't sing again. Please don't sing again. This is not about whether you can carry a tune in a bucket, brothers and sisters. This is about calm union. Calm, the Latin word for with. Union, the Latin word for one. When we sing together, we are in calm union. Now, this is the people's key because this is my key. Not a problem. It's not a problem for tenors. Tenors won't have any problem with this. Basses might be a little low. Feel free to, you know, take it up an octave. Altos, this should be fine. I used to be an alto before the cigarettes and the beer. But in, for the sopranos, this, this might be a little low for you. So sopranos, you know, take it up. Take it up that octave if you need to. So, everybody, welcome union members. I'll sing it to you and sing it back to me. Welcome union members. Welcome union members. Oh, very good. We are in your presence. We are in your presence. Hand in hand together. Hand in hand together. Nice. We make the union strong. We make the union strong. Okay, we already have harmony. That's beautiful. We can have some more harmony. Sopranos, feel free to bring out that harmony. Altos, you can, you can find a harmony in there. Basses, certainly. I ought to be able to find something. All right, ready? All together here. And well, members, we are in your presence. We are in your presence, hand in hand together. We make the union strong. Hand in hand together. Hand in hand together, we make the union strong. Ooh, nice. Thank you very much. Give yourselves a round of applause.
Every year we do a concert in December called the Evening of Favorite and Sacred Songs, and we do a spring concert as well. And uh, sometimes the performers say, you know, sometimes just looking at your face is half the fun. And, <laughs> and I, I, I can explain to you what happens is I get the first wave of sound before the audience gets it. I'm right here in front of you, and it is an amazing thing to be washed in a communal bucket of love and communion. And, and that's what singing is about, and that's why I have a labor course. And in the process of uh, gaining my own education, uh, when I first came to the labor movement, I didn't know much about labor songs. I knew about strikes. My father was a member of the UAW, uh, so I knew about picket lines, and we used to go out and visit him on the line, and they had the burn barrel going, and they'd spell out local 600 on the fence. Uh, so we understood that, and, and of course, we had the teachers... Uh, union, and we were aware of that. And we, were, we were taught at a very early age three things by both our, I'm saying this because my sister Cindy is here, my big sister. <laughs> Came special just for this. Seriously, seriously, she wanted to be here for this. Uh, so uh, we were taught three things. One, change your underwear every day. <laughs> Get the house and the car in your name. And three, never, ever, ever cross a picket line. You don't even have to know what it's for. You don't even have to know what the cause is. It's just the moment you see picket signs and people marching around. I often ask, I always take the literature, uh, but I certainly never cross that line. And that was just one of the core values of our family that I grew up with. But I didn't really know a whole lot about unions until I went to work for the Labor Studies Center at the University of Michigan. I was hired principally to do theater, even though I had never directed a show in my entire life. But uh, my godparents, High Cornblue and Joyce Cornblue, uh, saw something in me that I didn't see in myself and asked me to come and direct a labor theater project. And I think it was probably, I say that was 82. In 1985, I went to the Labor Notes Conference in Detroit, a big uh, activist labor union organization. And at that conference, I met this guy named Saul Schneiderman. And Saul Schneiderman had actually been searching for this labor folklorist who happened to be performing with, the, with the, what was then called Workers' Lives, Workers' Theories, Labor Theater Company. And he uh, found her amongst us, and, and he seemed like a really likable guy. So I said, hey, Saul, come out to dinner with us. So he did. He went out to dinner with us, and in the process, told us about this amazing event that was held in Silver Spring, Maryland, called the Great Labor Song Exchange. He invited me to come out to the Great Labor Song Exchange the following year, and of course I did. But I didn't really want to go. I really, to be honest, did not want to go. The idea of three days of labor songs sounded like a major snorposium to me. <laughs> so after going out with some friends, they threw me on the metro and sent me on a bus, and I arrived at the then George Meany Center. And I walked in the room, and this guy with gray hair, uh, combed back, and this guitar was singing loudly, I'm union, damn proud of it. And it was Joe Glazer. <laughs> Who, of course, hosted the Arts Exchange uh, every year, the Song Exchange. And so uh, after that, he introduced Reverend James Orange, who had come up, who some of you might know was an uh, act presente, uh, was an activist with Martin Luther King, Jr., and Reverend Orange got up and he started singing songs from the Civil Rights Movement. And the moment he opened his mouth, 
Everybody in the room broke out in four-part harmony, and I realized I had found my tribe, the long-lost tribe of social justice labor activist singers. And nobody had to be taught any parts. They just started singing in four-part harmony. And that rest of that evening, I felt I was in a complete state of utter joy. In that process, I learned more about labor music and labor history than any other time in my life. It was just an eye-opening uh, experience. I learned that the concept of unions, as Brother Perry said, is not just exclusive to organize labor as we know it and define it in this country. It is, it is, the essence of the word is one. So I say to all my classes when I teach labor history, let us look at the Constitution of the United States. What is the opening statement of the Constitution of these United States? Ready? We the people, in order to form a more perfect union. A more perfect what? Union. A more perfect what? Union. union. They didn't say association. They didn't say organization. They said union. And we can all agree that some of these slave-owning men, most of them were all very highly educated at some of the finest colleges and universities in Europe. And they knew exactly and were very particular about the words they chose in every line of the Constitution. And so they chose the word union because they understood it meant as one. They also understood that they could not conduct business if everybody had their own monetary system, everybody had their own kind of money they were printing, and everybody was dealing with the different countries in Europe in any which way they saw fit. So they said, well, <laughs> come, come, brothers, let's pull together here and form a more perfect union. And we do this in many ways in our communities in the efforts to deal with injustice. And I see the union as principally an organization in the fight for social and economic justice. And when we study labor history, we study our history, a part of American history. And I don't know about you, but I remember learning very little in school about labor history. I, can, I remember Samuel Gompers, but the context of Samuel Gompers and the context of that history was basically obfuscated, lost, or just basically lied about. And so in learning the music of labor, I learned the history of labor. The first time I heard the song, Joe Hill, I had no idea who Joe Hill was. When I had the opportunity, because I was working in the labor movement, to go to Sweden to the home of Joe Hill and to sing right there in front of his house that song, it brought a whole different awareness to me. But music is not just for entertaining. Music is more than that. It is the way that we really communicate and commune with each other. And every class I start, every class I teach, I start the class with that song. And I can't tell you or describe the painful looks on people's faces, which is why I started the little thing about the glee club teacher and the nuns and the rabbi, because I know that people have been so hurt around singing, who've been told that they cannot sing. You can't carry a tune in a bucket, whatever. But it is part of our nature as human beings to sing. It's not just for entertainment value. We sing because that's another form of expression. Someone once told me, I haven't actually looked this quote up, but that St. Augustine said that he who sings prays twice. And someone else said to me that 
he who sings organizes twice. So part of our mission is to get the labor movement and, in fact, the whole social justice movement singing again. We lost something when we stopped singing. And I noticed that when I would go on marches at the University of Michigan, where I was working at the time and also a student, that when we'd have student marches in the 80s and 90s, that people would be embarrassed about singing. Somebody would start, we shall overcome, and it would be like, <laughs> and I was recently at a lecture by uh, Dr. Bernice Reagan. And she started, of course, she always leads in song, and she started a song. And there was a whole group next to us who, was, who wasn't singing. And she went, she said, stop, 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 uh, no, no, no. You cannot study the civil rights movement without singing. You have to understand that this is part of the essence of that movement. And I want to give you a quote from her. She said, I learned that if you bring black people together, you bring them together with a song. To this day, I don't understand how people think they can bring anybody together without a song. And so when they had the anniversary of the Civil Rights March, one of the things I, one of our course members, uh, Peter Jones, said, it was, the, it was the, um, the largest gathering to remember an event that was all about song that didn't have a single one in it. And so we have to remember our song and remember to sing and share in the songs. That's why we chose the songs we did today, so that we have songs that had re repeatable choruses that are fairly easy to remember and go along with because it's hard to sing a long ballad like Joe Hill unless you know all the words. I also had the opportunity to go to South Africa as part of the work that I did at the Labor Study Center at the University of Michigan. It was a remarkable experience. It was my first time in the motherland. Um, we actually went to South Africa and then went to Ghana, so I had the opportunity to go to the place of no return where the slave ships left and many of our ancestors came uh, from. Uh, but when we went back to South Africa, we went to meet with a South African trade unionists. And everywhere we went, everywhere we went, they sang. They'd sing at coffee break. Well, it wasn't really, they don't call it coffee break. It's tea time, right? That British influence. So they would sing at the tea breaks, and they would sing at the lunch breaks, and they would sing at the afternoon breaks. And we're, we're walking through this, the factories, and many of them had never been in the factory. We had different unions, and they had never been in the industrial uh, factories. So we went into a steel mill, and people were astounded. Some people were actually frightened by the, uh, the heat and the, the hot molten steel. We actually were standing next to a big old giant bucket. I mean, really, like a, like a Mickey Mouse cartoon bucket with the big bolts on it, pouring hot steel directly in front of us. And they sang there. And finally, as we left the steel mill, we went out into the yard, and there was a guy who was pulling the, the conveyor belt, was bringing out the hot slabs of steel. And he was pulling them off and laying them in the grass in the yard. And as he stood there pulling these slabs of steel off, the brothers and sisters who were with us in our, in our party started singing. And I said, what are you singing? They said, it's a toy toy. Well, they called everything toy toy. They called the dancing toy toy. They called every song toy toy. Well, that's okay. I'll take your word for it. It's a toy toy. But what does it mean? They said that it's hot and nasty and we've got low pay and, you know, nasty bosses and it's hot and tired out here. I was like, Okay, I got it. And I thought to myself, where in the United States, what workplace could I go into where people would start singing to someone just because of the work that they were doing? Not because they wanted to do anything else, but to just sing to them. And I had this profound awareness 
that for many years I was embarrassed about singing. I was embarrassed about singing because I thought that was one of the things that was a stereotype of African Americans. I was particularly embarrassed about singing and smiling at the same time. Because <laughs> that was show enough coonery. And then as I watched and listened to my brothers and sisters in South Africa sing, and they, every time they sang, they sang in four-part harmony. I, I asked them about that, too. I said, huh, how, do you know, how do you know the alto part? You know, how do you know the soprano part? And they said, alto, soprano? What you talking about? And I was like, well, you know, no, no, you sing where your voice is. You sing because that's the way you were born to sing. And there's no adjusting of parts, and there's little notes on a page. You just sing. And I thought for all the times I was embarrassed about starting a song, for every time I felt like a spotlight hog for singing a song, I realized that I was honoring the Africa that is in me, that is in each and every one of us, because you know they've they done, done the DNA thing and traced everybody back to Africa. <laughs> it's in us to sing. It's not something on the side. It's not just for the talented or the gifted, which is what everybody leaves it to now. It's for each and every human being to express ourselves in the form of song. And song is not only organizing, it's revolutionary. And what happened at the end of that tour is we stopped at one uh, garment factory, and we were sitting in the cafeteria, and we were having lunch, and, and suddenly these two you know, white guys in white ties and white shirts and ties came out, and we were talking to our um, tour guide, and then they went away, and then they came back and talked to him again, and then they went away, and they came back. And he said, let me explain to you what's going on here. They think we're organizing a strike. Just by singing, they think we're organizing a strike. And I thought, wow, that is power. And there are many instances of how song bridged the gap of hope and despair, that when people were feeling like there was no way to go on, that they would start singing a song. When, when, uh, when George Bush was elect, elected president, I went to a concert, a workshop with Issei Barnwell, and, uh, and I was just feeling like, oh, God. I mean, I thought Ronald Reagan was bad. This is really bad. This is time to move to Canada, no doubt about it. And she was saying the same thing, and Issei was going, I don't know. I feel so depressed. I don't know what to say except for this. I feel like going on. I feel like going on. Though trials mount on every hand, I feel like going on. And that's all I needed. That was all I needed. I realized that being caught in powerlessness and despair is just where they want to keep us. But when we sing together, we sing together as community, we lift up literally the spirit of all the ones who have gone before us, the ones who envisioned this moment that we would be sitting in this room together as community. Envisioning a future of justice for all. Not, ju not just justice for the people that we can sit next to or the people who look like us or the people who live near us or the people who worship in the same place that we do, but for each and every person. How dare they burn the Koran? 
in the name of their Jesus or God, how could you see that as anything but blasphemy? This is a country that came together on religious tolerance. And yet in this case, the intolerance is unbearable. But we will lift them in song too. Because I've learned that in my own practice, that you can change people's minds with a song, and certainly sometimes, more often than not, their hearts. I'll leave you with this quote. It's from uh, Carl Polnack. It was one of those internet things that got sent around. And most, more often than not, I just hit delete. You know, I just, oh my God, here's another one. But sometimes, spirit speaks to me, literally, and says, open this one up. You need to read this. And I go, oh, okay, well, I really don't have time, but okay, all right. <laughs> Music allows us to move around those big invisible pieces of ourselves and rearrange our insides so that we can express what we feel even when we can't talk about it. Can you imagine watching Indiana Jones or Superman or Star Wars with a dialogue but no music? What is it about the music swelling up at just the right moment in E.T. so that all the softies in the audience start crying at exactly the same moment? <laughs> I guarantee, and I hated E.T. I was just like all against it. I went to see it and started crying. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm crying. <laughs> I guarantee you, if you showed the movie with the music stripped out, it wouldn't happen that way. This is what the Greeks said about music. Music is the understanding of the relationship between invisible, internal objects. So when we sing together, we organize together. When we sing together, we honor all those who have gone before us. We sing for our children and for our children's children. In the tradition of so many social justice songs, we reach back into the gospel African-American tradition to pull forward a song that joins us together. And as Joe Glazer would sing at the end of the arts exchange, Union, 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 Union. 